Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the Frequent Issuers Managing Editor at Global Capital. I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. And I'm Mike Turner, Credit Reporter. And of course, we're back once again with all that's most interesting from the world's capital markets. And there is none more interesting than the US debt ceiling. And uh, this week, we're talking about the knock-on effect that has on uh, capital markets around the world and how it affects issuers' plans. Uh, John, can you um, briefly uh, just summarise where we're at with the debt ceiling? What is it? And uh, when's it? When, when are we going to hit it? And why is everyone panicking? Yes, well, once again, we're up against this problem, which has occurred several times before um, in in our lifetimes uh, covering the capital markets and will no doubt occur again, which is that there's a congressional limit on how much debt the US government can issue. At the moment, it's $31.4 trillion. And um, so it's it's not allowed to borrow more than that, which means that if um, the, the and, and that that ceiling is about to be hit, so very soon it's going to need that ceiling to be raised or it will not be able to fund further obligations such as paying staff. And that could involve a government shutdown with ministries closing, as has happened before. Um, but, the, but the really scary thing for the capital markets would be the US actually not paying some of its debt on time. Yeah, I mean, it could it could hit this ceiling um, as early as June the 1st, couldn't it? Which is uh, mm. very, very soon. Um, now, our reporter Addison Gong has uh, done some digging and there are, of course, no US Treasury uh, coupon payments or maturities to meet uh, in the first two weeks of June, which which is good. But there are some T-bills, aren't there, that, uh, that um, are due in that time? I think $489 billion worth. So I guess that's yeah. what's a threat, you know, um, quite quite a fair bit of money. And and you can see the fear in the market of uh, a rising risk of default because yields on those were at 6.14%. This is the uh, T-bill that matures on June the 6th. Uh, the yield on that was 6.14% at the start of the week and it's got up to 7% uh as of uh yesterday morning that's thursday morning uh seven percent to uh for you know um holding u.s debt for a few days that's that's a handsome return but um mm. and of course this is this has had a knock-on effect of the rating agencies hasn't it um mike it has yeah and um rightly so so uh fitch and dbrs have both put the u.s on negative watch um and and that makes sense. They would they would do that for any other country. The U.S. has this sort of um, uh, exalted position in the capital markets, where the dollar is the U.S. is the reserve currency for the world, and U.S. Treasuries are seen as the most uh, safe haven of safe havens. Um, but now, ratings companies are warning that that might not be the case if this continues. Yeah. Now the I guess the the U.S. government default that sounds like an absolutely cataclysmic event but i think if history is our guide uh we can say it's unlikely um i guess the bigger worry is is related to the rating agency action and that's the cause or sorry the knock-on effects of a proper downgrade of the us on other us issuers um and we i think we've seen in the markets this week some borrowers getting out ahead of uh, any likely problem to get deals done haven't we john well i think that there are two there are probably at least two different things one is 
yes, you're right that if if the US was downgraded, some other issues probably would be too, or might be if they were, at, you know, but these are very highly rated issues. It happened before Standard & Poor's took the US's AAA rating away and moved it to AA+. And some insurance companies that were AAA lost their AAA ratings at the same time. And that's obviously a material, you know, that's going to widen their debt spreads a bit and it's going to sort of, you know, cause a bit of disruption. But it's obviously not threatening to them in any in any sort of profound sense. Um, then, but you've also got the effect of... Um, people just being scared of the market ructions and i think i think what they what what issuers are worried about is um either an actual default or really nasty situation where where it comes very close or just sort of as the deadline gets closer just more and more apparent gridlock in washington and sort of stressful negotiations and stressful days which are bound to lead to disruptive markets and and so a lot of issuers in the us have been doing deals ahead of that Particularly this week, we I mean, there's been very high corporate bond issuance all month, um, partly probably because of that. This week we had Lockheed Martin, a defense company, which has left it till kind of the last moment. But something like 70 percent of their revenue comes from the U.S. government. So they particularly, uh, you know, want to sort of get away from the problem and, and issue their debt in time. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not as if investors are shying away from deals uh, for fear that whatever they buy might suddenly cheapen. Um, JP Morgan also did its first dollar deal of the year uh, this week, and it took mm. uh, $2.5 billion out of the market. And City Citigroup did $3.2 billion worth of um, subordinated debt. Uh, so there's obviously uh, plenty of appetite to buy. Um, I, think it's, um, I think it's pretty telling that JP Morgan came for their first dollar of the year so they could have come at any point during the year and they've decided this week and this week is you know on paper you wouldn't think it was the best week to come because of all all the issues happening in the US but it shows how concerned I guess JP Morgan is that things could get worse after the the debt ceiling Mm. isn't raised yeah yeah um and Mike um so I mean obviously this is all if if it kicked off it would be really nasty of course but you know, at the moment, it's sort of just stress and, the you know, the markets are continuing to function. But what's what's the what's the effect on on the European market from from what's happening in the US? So it's been it's been tough to tell in the European market because, um, you know, there isn't like a direct line from US government borrowing to to euro corporates. But um, there have been winners and losers for sure this week. Um, there's been a lot of issuance. A lot of people are trying to come to the market and get their stuff done. Um, but the riskier deals, um, I'm thinking in particular of a hybrid deal from Vodafone, the telecoms company, um, really were caught up in in a bad day in the markets. And it's not that Vodafone did anything wrong, but the markets just tanked on the day that they came out. And because it's a riskier deal, investors decided they didn't want any of that and uh and it didn't do great because of that I mean, why do you think it's been so busy lately in the european corporate bond market mike well people have held off for quite a long time this year because of all the rate rises um and among the central banks so people have wanted to see where the market's heading and, and what's going to happen and you know maybe there was even a bit of hope that rates would start coming down a bit sooner um and now we're getting to the halfway point of the year. Uh, we're not that far away from the summer break. So that's generally a place where you can issue, but you can't issue in massive volume and you can't guarantee that every investor will be at their desk. So it makes it much more difficult. Um, and then after that, you're crammed into the end of the year. So 
that made this issuance window uh, really sort of the one for people to go for if they wanted to try and bring bigger deals or um, slightly more difficult or challenging deals. So this week, for example, we had a 20-year bond, the first one since February. Um, and that, it went great. It went really, really well for the German company Bosch. But that's the sort of deal that is good for this window because you know that investors are still at their desks. Things haven't quite fallen apart yet. Um, and you're not crammed into the final final window of the year when investors can really start turning the screws. Yeah, and the, the Vodafone deal really sort of contrasts, doesn't it, with some some other deals that uh, went through the market, not just Robert Bosch, but um, Continental and uh, Stora Enso did deals too that seemed to seem to be much better received. So what, what should we interpret from uh, the difficulty Vodafone had when other such well-rated credits... Um, did quite good deals, and actually, just going back to dollars. I mean, KFW, the German agency, which is uh, you know extremely well rated and, and loved in markets, uh, you know, it attracted its second biggest ever order book for a dollar deal this week. So it's it's certainly not the case, is it, that um, borrowers across the border are sort of struggling as this sort of debt ceiling limit or deadline approaches? No, and in many ways that kind of sums up what the issue is now. If you're trying to syndicate a deal, because you know, by all by all means, that KFW deal shouldn't have got such a big book in dollars. You know, you you think dollars are a bit risky. You know, there's a lot going on in U.S. politics. It it should you know get the deal done, but it shouldn't be like this big blowout. Um, and that's happening in corporates as well, where people are expecting things to go okay, or they wouldn't put them on screens. But some deals are doing great, and some aren't. And issuers and bankers and investors are trying to get a grip on why that is, and no one really has yet, which is why you got this Vodafone, uh, you know, uh, struggle. I guess would be the word. Well, it, it should be it should be said that you're being you're you're, re- you're reading the market in a very subtle way, Mike, because uh, I mean Vodafone did get issue a billion of hybrid capital, which is subordinated, um, so quite a risky form of debt, and they got like each transfer was at least twice oversubscribed if not more wasn't it so that it's you know it did get the deal done the market is functioning even for those riskier things but i think you're picking up that there were signals that that there wasn't the same enthusiasm uh about the deal that that there might have been in if investors are feeling more confident right and yeah it is it is that but it's if vodafone was if it was their first ever deal then mm. fine they did what they did but vodafone's a big issue and they've been around for years and investors know them and Mm. because of that you you know, it's. I think it's fair to expect a higher standard of transaction from them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's the same with a, a lot of corporate issuers, um, and it's just the nature of of corporate bonds and and SSAs. You know, in SSAs, you quite quibble about one basis point different here and there, because you expect this higher standard. Um, and with the Vodafone deal, yes, it was twice oversubscribed. But when you're talking about hybrids, which are very much a, a momentum. Um, structure so a lot of investors buy into these expecting it to do well in secondary because they get this massive blowout book they get loads of demand so in the secondary market it you know the price shoots up and everyone's happy if you if you get you know in air quotes just two times oversubscribed it's (laughs) not that different to a senior deal which you wouldn't expect to to move significantly in secondaries after pricing like a hybrid would Um, so it's you know, yeah, they got the money, and that's great, and they needed to refi their hybrids and 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 all that. But I think if they, if anyone was going to print a hybrid and could point at how they wanted their deal to go, they wouldn't necessarily pick that. 
Mm. I've got mm. a question. I mean, just how much do you think um, Vodafone's experience is down to the debt ceiling and sort of, you know, contemporary uh, fears in the market versus just the way the market has been evolving over the last year or two? Because if I think about the SSA bond market a couple of years ago, when central banks were buying everything in sight, rates were super stable. Then every deal got a huge order book, huge oversubscription, um, and everything everything worked. And now issuers are much more cautious. I mean, I had a, I hosted a, a roundtable discussion with a number of agencies um, on Wednesday, and they were all sort of expressing fears about how the U.S. debt ceiling debate was going, but they were also uh, cognizant of the fact that just the market had changed for them, and because rates had gone up and there was less central bank support, that it was just they just didn't expect to see the same order books for their deals mm. and the same sort of performance necessarily. I mean, obviously some of them have, and especially recently with the banking sector crisis, it's driven a flight to quality to, to you know, SSA type credits. Um, so, so do you think this was sort of a a blip for Vodafone or a, you know a blip for the hybrid market, or do you think this is just how these deals will be from now on? Well, yeah, there there are two bits there. So the this is anecdotal, but I've heard it as from an anecdote from probably like 10 people now in that when you when you're going to bring a deal and if it's going to be a tricky deal um really you should wait until markets have opened before you put the deal on screen so you you take that extra mm. half hour so you wait until like half nine rather than half eight for example and the reason you do that is because um because there's so much going on now in macro and to, and this week it happens to be the u.s uh, debt ceiling but you know a couple of weeks ago it's the banking crisis and you know credit suisse and all that so you wait until the market's open and you see what happens you see if spreads widen or um or if equity markets tank and then if they don't that's when you put your deal up and interestingly enough it was if people who have worked on the vodafone deal told me that before Vodafone came out, and Vodafone was still on screens quarter to nine in the morning, and then within fifteen minutes everything had tanked because everyone was freaking out about the the U.S. debt ceiling. So equities were deep in the red, credit spreads widened. Um, so, so you mean they uh, didn't wait? Long they didn't enough, wait. Basically. No, yeah. Mm. So they, they came before markets open, and you know the the argument to coming before markets open is then you get investor attention early. Um, mm. And, you know, with something like a hybrid, as I mentioned, is a momentum product, then you get, you know, plenty of time to get money in the book and get these big numbers on screen and make everyone excited and, and make more investors come in. Um, and then the other part of that is that because the ECB or central banks aren't there buying stuff anymore, it it makes it makes it much more apparent if the market does tank and you don't have the support for your deal. Because before, if the market tanked, for whatever reason, it didn't matter because you had central bank buying it. So everyone knew that everyone would still buy the deal anyway. Um, you mean they with, weren't worried about the secondary performance? Yeah, ex the exactly. Because would be buying, yeah. Ex yeah, because you had, a, you had a buyer who didn't care about pricing, who just had mm. a sort of mm. mandate to have to buy X mm. amount mm. of bonds um, rather than, you know, every other investor who has to make X amount of return. Mm. Mm. It's an interesting point you make about the sort of micro-timing of deals and the messaging around deals, Mike, as uh, in the covered bond market this week, uh, Van Lanshot Kempen was one of four issuers that announced a deal on, I think it was Monday, 
Well, it might have been Tuesday. But anyway, it announced a deal when there were three other deals already on screen and it decided to postpone. Um, now, if you think about what a deal postponement means or has traditionally meant in the capital markets, it's usually been something of a, you know, an exercise in slinking off with your tail between your legs. Uh, but again, I think this just shows us how much uh, markets have changed. There's, because they came a day later with the deal, got 500 million euros and, um, you know, received demand for it that um, our cover bonded as her Bill Thornhill described as vigorous. So it obviously <laughs> does pay, doesn't it, to um, to think about these things carefully and to, you know, really, really plan your approach to the market in some detail and not take take investors for granted. Well, I think, yeah, I think very much in that case, the proof's in the pudding, isn't it? They came the next day and did a good deal and it went well. Mm. So that, that proves that, all the decisions made there from pulling it to or postponing it rather to come in the next day was the right choice um um but the you know the other issue with that is that if you postpone it and then bring it the next day and it doesn't do well then yeah you know it's, it's you look even worse yeah, yeah. it's yeah. terrible yeah <laughs> yeah so, so what's the forecast then for european corporate bond issuance mike i mean um do you think do you think uh vodafone's experience has changed how issuers will approach the market and what what other sort of looming problems are issuers going to have to worry about uh well i'd be surprised if we see another sub-investment grade hybrid come before summer um there's a there's a sort of looming feeling in the corporate bond market that the short term is is kind of okay and you can get deals away and and Robert Bosch's deal yesterday proved that because had a huge blowout transaction you know like massive twenty three billion order book and you know all these sort of big numbers um, but in the in the medium to longer term things start deteriorating quite significantly so after summer is probably going to be quite difficult um, particularly because of things like uh, Germany has gone into recession and there's this drag on corporate earnings. So the corporate earnings that we just saw were, were fine, they're okay. Um, but there are certain indicators there that suggest that the next lot of corporate earnings are not going to be okay and they're going to be much more indicative of companies in struggle. And then that will, of course, filter through to how investors see them because fundamentals are such an important part of it, the equation now, now that central banks aren't buying stuff anymore. Do you think that the uh, recent like spree of activity will help with that though because issuers will already have got a lot of funding done and so there just won't be as many bonds to to bring to market as there might have been yeah i mean it, it won't it won't hurt that's for sure if if there was still you know 15 billion a week of bonds to do coming into november that would be quite hairy um, and almost certainly would see failed bonds you know would see smaller issuers or issuers with less of a following or less willing to pay you know, play the game and pay pay slightly more um, concession. Probably wouldn't, you know, the leads would have to step in and make up quite a big part of that book. But um, yeah, I think I think this big burst that we've seen in the past three weeks or so, uh, or, or across May, um, will have taken some of the pressure off. But there's still there'll still be that latent problem there, you know, and anything anything else that comes along, like you know, end of year M and A's that people have been working on all year, for example. It just adds to that pressure because that will, you know, investors want to buy M and A's. There'll be big, big money going into that, and so anyone who hasn't got their refinancing done, I can't imagine they're feeling particularly calm about it. Um, and of course, you know, in the background, uh, or perhaps just all over the foreground and the background, is the ECB and uh, its interest rate 
raising program and uh, how that's affecting the shape of the yield curve, which really affects what corporate treasurers can do in the bond market, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, well, it's it's kind of weird because the 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 way that the yield curve has panned out and the way that swap spreads have panned out is that it's now you get a higher yield for shorter maturities than you do longer maturities, which, you know, in, in any logical sense, that doesn't work. Um, but that's just how it is now. And if the ECB continues uh, its rate rising, which, you know, it may well do, um, the corporate curve is going to get flatter and flatter between two and 10 years, um, which from what analysts tell me, that's the only time that's really sustainable is during mass crisis. So we're not in a mass crisis and we won't be in a mass, you know, like the sort of 2008 global financial crisis, for example. And we're not in that. So what that means is that the the long end of the curve, the corporate curve, will, will shoot up quite significantly, meaning that long end debt, anything past five years, um, will become much more expensive than it is now for corporates to raise. Yeah, it's interesting, though, isn't it? We're very much poised at a sort of crossroads, aren't we? And, and you know, all, all paths seem to be open. Like re- recently you were writing about how some investors were um, sort of keen to take duration again, right? And, you know, there's definitely a view and, and it's still held with conviction by some that, um, you know, now is the right time to buy into longer debt because, it, you know, the rate, the, the upward interest rate curve is going to slow and and start dipping again and they you know so those bonds will appreciate and you know so it could it could go in in any number of different ways and i think i think the um last few weeks corporate bond issuance with with some short bonds going extremely well some long bonds like bosch's uh going going exceptionally well I th- i'm sure that surprised the banks on the deal even because nobody had tried a 20 year for three months and and here was one and it went it was terrific so i th- i think um you know, it's an extremely interesting market where investors are taking different views that that contrast with each other, and um, it, you know, nobody knows yet who's going to be right. Well, that that's still the fallout of the European Central Bank not buying stuff anymore, because when they were buying stuff, everyone knew what was going to happen, um, <laughs> and and the people who bet against it lost mm. lost money every time. Mm. Um, so yeah, so it's certainly a more interesting market now. Good for journalists, if not for investors, that's for sure. <laughs> and I think bankers are enjoying it too. I mean, several have said to me that they that they find it more interesting to do their jobs now. And of course, they won't be facing any awkward awkward conversations from issuers about fees for deals that uh, work regardless. <laughs> well, um, let's let's turn our attention to the uh, Middle East, uh, where. We've had a sort of uh, slight pickup again in um, IPOs with some some very impressive deals. Um, John, what were the what were the deals that happened this week? Right. So the Middle East was the bright spot for IPOs, particularly in equity capital markets last year. Um, and you know, for the first time ever, there were more. There was a higher volume of IPOs in the Middle East than in Europe than in all of Europe last year. So in the EMEA market, it was, you know, 58% Middle East, I think. And and that was really exceptional. And, and it was caused by the sort of terrible sort of economic stress in Europe co- caused by rising interest rates, while at the same time you had high energy prices, um, which of course are part of the cause of inflation, um, boosting the Middle East uh, economies and balance sheets all over there. Now, this year, that trend has sort of weakened 
um, the, the Middle Eastern IPO issuance has continued, but it's, it's at a reduced pace. There's something like $3.7 billion have been raised so far this year. Last year, in the same time, it's $11 billion. So this week, we had two deals that were important tests of this sentiment, whether the IPO market in the Middle East is going to carry on with a good run. And they were Adnoc L&S, which is the logistics arm of Adnoc, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, um, which is a huge sort of conglomerate that has been gradually selling different parts of its empire, um, well, sort of floating them on the stock market, maintaining ownership, but but selling parts of them. And this is actually the sixth IPO that Adnoc has brought. Um, and and um, <clears throat> so it's an important deal. And the other one was Jamjum Pharmaceuticals, a privately owned company in Saudi Arabia. Now, both of the deals priced at the top of the range, which doesn't happen very often in equity capital markets and is a, a clear sign that, um, you know, there's there's plenty of demand still for these deals. And the the Adnot one, in fact, was exceptional because it got one hundred and twenty five billion dollars of demand, um, one hundred and sixty three times oversubscribed. So that's a, an actual record for a United Arab Emirates. So so is the market slowing down then because this year compared to last year because of lack of supply rather than demand? I think it's a combination. I think there is a bit of investor fatigue after there was an awful lot of deals last year, something like 60 IPOs. And, you know, this is in a region where which isn't used to anything like that flow. It wasn't long ago that when if you had a big IPO to do in the Middle East, you would bring it to London, um, you know, and, and that doesn't happen anymore because there's, the capital markets locally have developed so much. But but still, the markets are not used to such high volumes. And that's, I think there's a bit of, you know, wanting things to slow down. The other thing is the actual stock markets in UAE and Saudi Arabia have fallen. You know, weirdly, you wouldn't think this would be going on when, when the markets are falling, but they've, they've come down quite a lot. Um, and, you know, that's probably mainly because um, the, the people are not so bullish on energy prices anymore. But also with rates higher in the developed world, international investors just find the yields that, that attract them to the Middle East less attractive. So what about further further deals, John? Uh, is, this, is this a revival or is this just two sort of one-off examples of, of some stunning deals? Because a lot of the a lot of the um, a lot of the listings have been driven by privatizations and state-led initiatives to sort of wean their economies off of uh, hydrocarbon income. Yeah, well, as our equities editor, Aidan Gregory, who's been covering this, uh, reported, there are um, there is an increasing flow of private companies coming. Jamjoon was one. Um, and, and, you know, bankers he's talked to say that they have more, um, you know, so, so there, there is there is a sort of more diverse and um, substantial pipeline of deals to do. Um, but the it, it, one thing he does point out is that, you know, you need to be pragmatic about the pricing. And and I think that's one thing that that Aidan thinks has, has helped the um, Middle Eastern market is that the issues are very, they're not too fussy about price. They take a sort you of know, US approach to pricing rather than a European approach to pricing. Perhaps, perhaps even more um, generous than that. I think they, you know, he said that, that Adnoc, for example, which is regarded by the equity capital markets bankers as a particularly good company at doing IPOs, they 
reckon they left quite a lot of money on the table. They could have even set the price range higher for Adnoc LNS, but they they want to see the deals go well, basically. And the um, you know as long as issuers do that, they they ought to be able to get deals done. But but one banker said to Aiden that um, you know you need to be sensible, and the trouble is not everybody wants to be sensible. <laughs> That's the is when I've spent many years covering emerging market debt, and mm. it was exactly the same then. And what tended to happen was that um, if one company did X, then other companies within that sector who saw themselves as peers mm. to that company were quite happy to do X at the same price. So maybe if now that Adnoc has <laughs> mm. laid down this groundwork, yeah. um, it might actually be quite helpful. Yeah, it's a bit harder with IPOs because every it's your well, first of all, it's your baby. You know, if it's if it's your company you you've built up since you were twenty five, you know it's when you're giving it away. You know you, that's a that's a strongly emotional moment, and it's also strategically important how you price it and so on. But um, but um, and and also every every company is valued on a different basis. But it's certainly true that that people do look at each other's deals and sort of get encouraged or discouraged or. Or, and get ideas from each other. So yeah, it, you know, it's. It, I'm sure the bankers think Adnoc is setting a good example. Well, speaking of um, debt in the Middle East, uh, and uh, you know, uh, we should turn pay a little bit more attention to the um, Sukuk market, which we talked about last week. It's um, a demand there for uh, deals, as our emerging markets team of Francesca Young and George Collar point out has been absolutely rapacious. And in fact, there's been uh, $20.7 billion of new international Sukuk issuance this year so far from the senior region. Um, there have also been, recently been uh, a deal from the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund too. Um, and that's anyway, that, that volume is is well ahead of any year uh, since 2010, apart from 2017, and and this month alone, um, there's been 8.7 billion dollars of issuance, which is about half of the total issued last year. Um, I, I think it's it's an interesting story because these are issuers that can play into a something of a captive investor base, and so they often achieve very very good pricing. Um, but there's been some signs that. Uh, you know, investors are starting to ha- sort of have their fill, which I suppose plays into another theme in Middle Eastern capital markets, which is how developed they are. So what would be the sign of that um, indigestion appearing? Uh, well, there would be a few signs, things like smaller books, for example, because investors have allocated enough money to to deals. They don't want to, you know, pile in and, and try and snap up everything they can. But also um, the spreads will narrow between Sukuk and conventional deals. Um, at the moment, Sukuk can price far inside uh, conventional deals. A company called Noga Holding printed 25 basis points inside uh, its conventional curve. Um, and that, that spread difference would, would go away just because um, from a pure demand and supply dynamic, investors, have, have, you know, they've filled their boots, so they don't need to fight so mm. much for, for deals. But it should still be advantageous to to issue Sukuk, shouldn't it? Because other things being equal, you get a bigger investor base, basically, because a conventional investor can also buy a Sukuk, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you have a, a very captive investor base, and then you also have a conventional investor base, um, which in theory does work. But at the same time, Sukuk takes a long time to put together. Um mm. 
you know, you're, you, you've covered ESG for a long time, John. I, so Cook takes much longer than your standard ESG deal. Um, well, that, I think that's an important important point, isn't it? That is also something that boosts the audience for uh, so Cook is that it's it's a sort of a natural a natural kind of ESG investment because of the restrictions of uh, what um, so Cook can fund and what assets can back it. Yeah, it is an ESG investment, really. Uh, yes, I mean they they generally are ESG investments, but there's um, been examples of. Um, so cook that have been used to, to buy things like uh sorry so cook that have been backed by things like uh duty-free floor space in airports which is fags and booze which is quite far from esg in in most cases um you know obviously it passed through you know got the the Sukuk blessings and whatnot and and passed through the um auditing process there so it was for the floor space rather than what was being sold on the floor space but you can see how there there are um ways that you can uh interpret the the rules of of what should be a Sukuk and you know how that links to ESG and how sensitive ESG and Sukuk investors can be in in what they're buying so in the Sukuk market we have uh, a way for issuers to diversify their investor base to print something that's ESG, as long as they're not using it to flog fags and booze, uh, where there's something of a sort of captive demand um, by dint of the people who have restrictions on what they can invest in, and really tight pricing, which is, of course, the the big kicker. So given the exceptional volumes we've had, is this is this uh, a dawning of the maturity of the Sukuk market, and will it become a mainstream financing product? Uh, well, I've been writing in various ways about the Sukuk market for many years and a dawning of the Sukuk market comes probably once every three years or so. Um, so I, I'm not saying that this hasn't got legs behind it and it's not, you know, the numbers are very big that are on screen, but, um, you know, the UK did a Sukuk in 2014 that was meant to be the dawning of Sukuk in the UK and was meant to be a real benchmark for stuff. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, and I can't see that it will particularly happen now. I think Sukuk will always be a a bit of a niche product just because of the hoops you have to jump through to get to it. I mean, it's true what you say about diversification, but you have to be a treasurer who is really into diversification to go through the amount of effort that you need to to, to print Sukuk. Uh, what do you think, John? Because uh, you, you also... Um reading quite a lot about the Shuldshine market. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because, you know, the UK Sukuk was uh, supposed to herald um, the country's sort of entrance as the the hub of the uh, the burgeoning Islamic finance market. Now, another sort of local market that has experienced greater internationalization is the Shuldshine market. So do you think there are parallels to be drawn there where we will see a sort of similar, more permanent amount of international issuance or not? Well, that's remarkable lateral thinking, Ralph. I don't, I'm not sure I've ever uh, thought of uh, that anyone's ever tried to compare the Sukuk and the Shulchan before. Isn't um, the Shulchan market famously just one sheet of paper? Well, that's the first thing, <laughs> yes, is that the, traditionally the, the documentation was extremely light because all the rules were in the German uh, commercial law. And, uh, you know, that so, you know, whereas Sukuk's the opposite, it's got, you know, you've got to have a lot of careful documentation and you know, signed off by Islamic scholars and so on. So I think I think that's the first thing. But it, um, you know, maybe maybe more than a sort of 
I can't quite see the parallel between the Shulchan and the Sukkot. But what I do think is um, interesting is that, you know, there have been non-traditional issuers, right? We had uh, this year Air Lease Corporation, which is an American uh, aircraft lessor, did a, did a Sukkot, right? So there are sophisticated issuers that, that have to do lots of funding that will take the time and, and effort to to explore it. And, you know, we could see more of that. And I think if, if a... If a you know, Standard and Poor's, I think, were referred to by uh, George Collard and Francesco Young, who wrote this article, as having said that if um, the, um, you know, market could become more standardized and that some of the processes more streamlined, you know, that could increase. But I think the really, the sort of most intriguing thing is governments. And, you know, at the beginning of this year, we had Egypt, which is single B rated and uh, regarded by many emerging market debt in issuers uh, sorry investors as sort of at risk of distress right did us a cook and they um hadn't done one before so you know that was very really very pertinent and useful funding for egypt and south africa is another country which is not um an amazing credit and and they've used the market and i think that you know south africa turkey which we mentioned last week these are countries which have some funding issues and they could, you know, potentially really benefit from it. Well, to track the development of the Sukuk market or how investors and issuers are going to cope with the twists and turns of the US debt ceiling debate, there is nowhere better than globalcapital.com. So do head there, look for a trial, or of course, just subscribe to this podcast. It's free and it's out every Friday. Uh, it just remains for me to thank John and Mike for joining me to discuss the matters raised in this episode. And of course, to thank Gerald Hayes, our producer, who stitches it all together into something altogether more audible than the initial takes. Thank you, of course, for listening. We'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. Thank you very much and goodbye.